video game SCPs. When the average fan thinks of an SCP, they are likely imagining some sort of hostile and dangerous entity, such as the statue or the hard-to-destroy reptile. But as we've seen, anomalies can come in all shapes and sizes. SCPs can exist as locations, cosmic phenomena, animals, mundane objects, and even video games. While this idea might call to mind some well-known video game creepypasta, such as Ben Drowned, SCPs tend to vary quite a bit in direction. Let's take a look at a handful of anomalies either existing as video games or connected to them. SCP-896 is a well-known, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG. And although the version that's playable by the public has no anomalies, the original code does. The abnormal behavior of the original code manifests when a user creates an avatar that shares the exact first and last name of the user. When this happens, the user is imprinted upon the avatar, and any changes to the avatar's statistics will have a direct impact upon the user. There are six attributes associated with characters in the game, and raising these stats will cause a corresponding increase in the physical or mental characteristics of the user. If a character's strength increases, so does the user's. If the agility increases, users report a high accuracy of movement and control over their body, allowing for a greater speed of movement with no sacrifice of skill or accuracy. If stamina increases, a user can go longer without food or sleep, has enhanced physical endurance, and even resistance to disease and physical damage. A higher charisma grants the user a deep understanding of individuals and the capability of manipulating them to their own wants. A higher intelligence leads to an increase in information retention and problem solving while a higher wisdom grants a person a deeper understanding of situations and people, and allows them to see the best possible solution for problems, depending on their moral and ethical priorities. So far, it sounds good. However, if any single stat is at least 15% greater than any other stat, all other physical attributes of the user suffer. The Foundation decided to do a test run with 5 D-Class, each focusing on a single stat while leveling their characters in the game. A Knight to focus on Stamina, a Berserker to focus on Strength, a Cleric to focus on Wisdom, a Warlock to focus on Intelligence, and a Bard to focus on Charisma. The first test allowed them to play for a few hours, which did not grant much experience, and thus simply established a baseline for each D-Class. After a week of play, however, effects began to become noticeable. The Knight displayed an increased pain tolerance, and was able to maintain a full sprint on a treadmill for two minutes longer than the week prior, while the Berserker developed a more muscular physique, and was able to lift 9% more. The Warlock's abilities in Information Recall and Application have increased dramatically, while the Cleric began conducting highly organized and logical debates with researchers regarding the ethics and purpose of testing humans with SCPs. 
The bard's abilities are predictably difficult to test for, however. So far, none of their primary stats have gone over that 15% threshold, so they let them play for another week. During play, the berserker broke his keyboard and mouse by gripping them too hard, so he was given a new set made of steel. All of the D-Class began deferring to the Bard's judgement in any situation, and began giving all of the magic items they find to him, regardless of his actual need or use for them. The Berserker has been instructed to begin increasing his agility attributes so that he can better control his strength, and the Bard has been forbidden from speaking during testing. The Warlock is now approaching Savant level intelligence, but the Knight and Berserker's IQ has plummeted. Meanwhile, the Bard, Cleric, and Warlock have significantly reduced energy levels now, and have lost 20% of their muscle mass since starting. During the following period of gaming, the Knight and Berserker got into an argument over who should receive a magic item, leading to the Berserker throwing the Knight into a concrete wall. The Berserker was easily subdued by security with a taser, as he possesses no additional toughness or endurance, while the Knight was unharmed by the throw, but he possesses no additional strength. More troublesome, the mental faculties of every subject has plummeted, including the Warlock, who despite having near-perfect recall, has lost nearly all ability of applying his knowledge. Even the slightest leap in logic or creative thinking is beyond him. Conversely, the cleric's long-term memory has been severely limited, and he must be briefed on all aspects of a problem before formulating a solution. Both the cleric and the warlock now require wheelchairs and assistance in feeding themselves. The knight's skin has become so hard as to lose all elasticity, and the skin near his joints has to be lacerated with a diamond-bladed saw in order to provide the necessary range of movement for testing. The Berserker, however, requires continual skin grafting at this point, as his muscle growth has outstripped the elasticity of his skin. Later, the Bard managed to breach containment, after convincing the guard who brought his food to let him out. He proceeded to walk to the site cafeteria and convinced the personnel there to make him a steak and some strawberry ice cream, and upon completing the meal, returned to his cell to sleep. Recognizing the threat his abilities posed, he was ordered to be terminated, but it's theorized that he only returned to his cell because the thought of escape never even entered his mind. The cleric has requested permission to invest in some intelligence in order to enhance his failing memory, which is tentatively approved, as nearly all of the subjects require the cleric's guidance to perform any task. The Berserker, meanwhile, claims that he is no longer experiencing any increase of strength or agility despite continued gain in the game, but the Foundation isn't quite sure they believe him. Communication with all of the subjects is becoming increasingly difficult due to each of them losing language skills. Sometime later, the Berserker managed to remove his shock collar on the way back to their containment cells killing a few guards due to his strength and speed being much higher than anticipated. He proceeded to free the other subjects, 
and he and the warlock made their way back to where the game was stored. The knight remained behind to hold off the rest of the guards for ten minutes, as standard weaponry couldn't harm him. He was eventually terminated by being forced into a containment cell and asphyxiated, which took around twenty minutes. Upon reaching the 896 containment cell, the warlock instructed the berserker to open the security door, which he did by ripping it off its hinges. This act swiftly killed him however, as the force required to do so resulted in a number of his bones being shattered and his spine snapping in three places. He had the strength to perform the feat, but his bone structure was still unfortunately human. The warlock then accessed the game, taking seven minutes to decipher the source code and directly edit his character's stats. Upon changing all of his stats to the max values, he disappeared and has yet to be found. Upon reviewing his account information stored in the game, researchers found a customer service notation simply stating that the user has been banned for hacking. The cleric managed to escape containment during the whole debacle, and his whereabouts are also unknown. He was likely the mastermind behind the whole breach, and likely used the help of a researcher to access another SCP and use it to escape. It was also later discovered that another researcher was conservatively using the game to augment his stats, leveling them uniformly to avoid any negative effects. He was 53 years old, in good health, and his strength and IQ had increased 7% over the course of playing the game. At one point, however, over a Thanksgiving weekend, he decided to have a gaming marathon with the game, playing it for a handful of hours straight before dying. Autopsies revealed evidence of severe arthritis, early onset Alzheimer's, cataracts, and development of several tumors with the conclusion that he had died of old age. I guess it's not a magical improvement anomaly after all. Moving on to something a little bit more old school, SCP-1315 is a grey cartridge to be used with a Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. The cartridge itself is unlabeled, but the accompanying manual indicates that the game is titled Professor Ghoul's Terrifying Horror Challenge, a realistic, high-stakes action game for one to two players. The manual reads, Professor Ghoul's Terrifying Horror Challenge is a realistic and scary action game that the entire family can enjoy. The manic Professor Ghoul invites all comers to test their mettle, wits, and strength in his fantastic challenge. Do you have what it takes to be victorious? Playing the game is easy. All you have to do is choose whether you want to go it alone or with a friend, and then do whatever it takes to survive level after level of horrifying action and adventure. Once you've started the game, you can play it anywhere. Home, in town, at school, wherever Professor Ghoul's spooky creations find you. The fun never ends. Be careful though, Professor Ghoul is a man of honor and once you've decided to take on the challenge, you can't stop until someone emerges the victor. Manage to get through with all your body parts intact, and you'll be the coolest kid in town. Lose, however, and you're at the mercy of Professor Ghoul. 
There are no extra lives in Professor Ghoul's terrifying horror challenge, and no second chances. Get game over, and you're done. When using the game with an NES, a black screen will appear with the options of one player or two. Pressing either option will then bring up a prompt to confirm that the individuals currently holding controllers are those that wish to play the game. Pressing yes at this point will cause the game to beep loudly and display a blank red screen. The game has now begun, and the player or players will be subjected to a series of increasingly horrific challenges that will seemingly manifest in the physical world, but only for the players to see. The players will have to escape from or combat a series of hostile creatures across a number of levels, and it's unknown how many challenges must be completed to win the game, as no one the Foundation has tested it on has beaten it so far. The highest a D-Class has managed so far has been level 33. Once the game has commenced, it cannot be halted until either the players win or are defeated. Turning the NES off will simply make the players unable to receive hints from the game itself, and the challenges will proceed to follow the players wherever they go. As the challenges increase in difficulty, players are likely to become captured by the entities, at which point the game will end and the players will disappear to an unknown location. We're given a test log of a playthrough, with a note telling us that different playthroughs tend to be rather similar, with only a slight element of randomness. The first level consists of a large number of spiders, rats, or various insects attempting to overwhelm the players. A large container of insecticide or rodent poison appears somewhere within the vicinity of the players, and the challenge is over once the vermin are all destroyed. The third level consists of a group of two to six wild animals, a combination of bears, wolves, and large cats attempting to eat the players, and they have to survive for one hour. A shotgun and box of rounds appear in the vicinity, but using it to kill any of the animals will cause two more animals to appear within five minutes. In the seventh level, the player's location is assaulted by one or two hostile men armed with weapons ranging from machetes and axes to a chainsaw or even a firearm. The players must survive for one hour or kill the attackers, although they're given no weapons. In the ninth level, the players are pursued by two to five armed men resembling a random group of authority or a local police force, with the intent of apprehending the players. They win the challenge if they resist capture for two hours, and a loaded firearm does appear within the vicinity, although using it to kill any attackers will cause them to call for backup. Level 12 has an unseen but hostile force attacking the player's location, capable of manipulating physical objects, including the player. Three random objects, generally reported to be documents, photographs, or ornaments owned by a previous player, appear in the vicinity, and the level is won when the players find all of them and burn them. Level 16 has a group of four to eight humanoids appear and create makeshift weapons before hunting down the players. Level 18 has an entity resembling another SCP, 
with a note that it's easier for two players to win this than a single player, suggesting that it's likely the statue. Level 20 consists of the players being tortured in a windowless room for 30 minutes. Level 23 involves the players being stranded in a dense forest and hunted by a number of unknown creatures until they reach a wooden shack a number of kilometers away. And level 27 involves the players being attacked by shadow entities in a rundown urban area. They are attacked if the players move too fast or make too much noise, and the players have to travel a number of kilometers to find a weapon that they can use to destroy the entities. Level 28 consists of a group of entities resembling people familiar to the players appearing at their location, all subdued in a manner that they pose no danger. The players win by killing all of the entities with a supplied weapon, while the entities address the players personally and mention personal histories of the people they resemble. In level 29, the players perceive themselves to be on the top floor of an outer tower of a medieval-style castle that overlooks an expanse of forest, with a heavily armed and extremely hostile entity known as the Professor chasing them. The players have to find some keys hidden throughout the castle and then escape. In level 31, the players find themselves on a vast island containing the remains of an abandoned military complex, a small urban area, a network of underground tunnels, and patches of dense forest. The players are again pursued by the Professor entity, as well as three to six entities resembling the victims from level 28 all who move faster than the players and appear to communicate with telepathy. The player's goal is to survive for 24 hours, but at every third hour, two to four additional humanoids materialize within the zone. The players are not provided with any weapons, but can use whatever is at their disposal to stun or kill the pursuers. The last level reached by D-Class, level 33, has been expunged entirely. Continuing with the NES is SCP-4054, a platform adventure game titled The Seventh Door, released in 1988. The contents of each cartridge released vastly exceeds the storage limitations of its chip, and extracting its ROM produces a data file too large to be contained on any currently available device. 300 of the cartridges were produced, and since the game can't be copied, has limited replayability, and it's in an incomplete state, functional copies of the game are highly valued by NES collectors. The game is also notable for its unique method of bypassing the North American version of the NES lockout system. It does this by having two transistors on the cartridge that function as a voltage inverter which produce a voltage spike that disables a circuit on the console and bypasses the lock. Later iterations of the NES included some modifications to prevent this bypass technique. A defect in this voltage inverter's design, however, causes irreparable damage to the cartridge's SRAM with each reset, producing an increasing number of glitches, inevitably resulting in the game becoming non-functional. On top of that, the game was also shipped in an incomplete state, 
resulting in a number of aspects of the game being missing or broken. The protagonist has no extra lives, so upon dying all progress is lost and the cartridge resets, which is a problem. All power-ups described in the manual are absent in the game except for one, the Hand of Glory, which prevents all monsters and platforms from moving for 10 seconds. As a side note, a Hand of Glory was said to be the dried and pickled hand of a hanged man, which when used to hold a candle made of the man's fat could render everyone who viewed it immobile. All monsters in the game are missing and falling into a pit doesn't kill the player, instead causing them to continue to fall off screen as the game over sound loops. While in most games this would make it rather difficult to actually die, the protagonist in the seventh door dies at apparently random intervals, typically after a period of remaining still, regardless of whether or not the game is paused. Memory overflow errors periodically cause sprites to load incorrectly, and the prisoners in the game use the protagonist's sprite rather than their own. After unlocking a door, prisoners provide no clues regarding the location of other keys, as the text boxes are empty. Despite the manual claiming that the seventh level is the final one, researchers have uncovered several hundred levels more consisting of vast networks of crypts, prisons, abandoned factories, and empty underground cities. This seems to be the reason why the game's file is so large, and the total number of levels is unknown. The seventh level also does not contain the seventh key, meaning that the game has yet to be beaten. So far it's not absurdly anomalous. But in 2004, an amateur NES collector named Charles Rogers posted a thread on the now-defunct online forum OpeningTheSeventhDoor.int under the username Inky49. He suggested using an NES Game Genie cheating device to directly set the protagonist's number of keys to 7. Several days later, he posted a link to a stream where he intended to beat the game using this exploit. Partway through the run, however, the video abruptly stopped, and a follow-up investigation determined that he had gone missing. The copy of the seventh door was missing from his console, and several fingernails torn from his left hand were found inside of the console. To date, it has been linked to 25 disappearances and remains under investigation. That was definitely more of the classic creepypasta style of articles, so let's move on to something a bit more modern and a bit more controversial. SCP-5167 is an entity known to manifest as a player in the online multiplayer game Among Us, under the username of Thonis. The entity will randomly join multiplayer lobbies and participate as a normal player, although the majority of its speech using the in-game chat consists of lengthy diatribes. Individuals who interact with the entity in-game will begin to exhibit symptoms of paranoia and Capgra delusion, a disorder in which they come to believe that those around them have been replaced with identical imposters. 
The severity of these symptoms varies from person to person, but it has been significant enough to prompt acts of self-defense, up to and including homicide. These symptoms were originally believed to last for several months, but have lessened to one or two weeks as observation has continued. The player Thonis was a minor urban legend in the Among Us community, leading the Foundation to investigate and discover a number of accounts of player encounters with the entity. The Foundation tasked one of their learning computers with tracking sessions of the game until the entity was encountered, with the players in said session beginning to exhibit the symptoms associated with 5167. So far, they've been unable to track down the user behind the entity, however, with all attempts to locate the access point used just leading to deserted addresses in rural Greece. An intelligence director leaves a note saying that when they first discovered the entity, the impact it had on its victims was severe, with one player mutilating his family's faces. Almost immediately after discovery, however, and since then, the potency of its effects have started to decline. Full detachment from reality became delusion, and delusion became paranoia, which is lessening with each new case. Based on their observations, Thonus's effects will become inert before long, although they don't know if it will continue to pop up in matches or not. During one of these appearances, a player asks Thonis where they were when the others were doing Reactor. Thonis replies that he was there when the mountains were newborn and the oceans virginal. He was there when gods walked among men and their wisdom was cast down like sunlight. He was there when mankind was capable of legends and now he finds himself in a world that has forgotten even the taste of life even the very concept of life beyond existing from one day to the next. Where all the world is wasted away in idle play of emotions that once rang true. He is in a world where even the gods are forgotten, their bones washed away by time. A world where man has moved on, and all the legacy he has left are three sentences on Wikipedia. He thought his time had come again, and this could be the new him but this is nothing, and he wants to stay dead this time. Chat is silent for 12 seconds before someone else comments that Red is sus. For some context, Thonis was the Greek personification of jealousy and envy, generally in matters of romance. It seems that Thonis was awoken in the modern day and has been attempting to use Among Us to breed paranoia and delusions, but has just become more and more disillusioned with the modern world, slowly fading away once more. As I said, it's a fairly contentious article due to being based around a very modern, fad game. So let's finish with one based around a much more classic game, Quake. SCP-2639 is a phenomenon that manifests as a one-kilometer cubic volume wherein anomalous entities and objects materialize, then dematerialize around one to two hours later. An imperceptible barrier around this area prevents the entities from leaving during this time. 
The entities are three humanoids, equipped with anomalous weaponry and armor, each one exhibiting superhuman speed, strength, endurance, resistance to injury, and perceives no pain or discomfort. When any of the entities are destroyed, an undamaged copy will appear shortly after, somewhere within the vicinity. The objects that materialize in the area are intangible, each hovering slightly above the ground and rotating on a horizontal axis. When the entities make contact with these objects, the objects typically disappears and confers a beneficial effect to the entity, including new anomalous weaponry, increased resistance to injury, and higher overall damage output. One particular type of object, known as an ammo pack, only appears when one of the entities or a non-anomalous human expires. Along with this effect is a customized desktop computer, running without a discernible power source, which has been hosting a heavily modified Quake deathmatch game since 1997. The session has three participants connected to it through anomalous means, and they have been identified as three teenagers that have been missing since June 18, 1997. The Foundation didn't discover the computer until 2010, but the phenomenon had been popping up all over the world, causing havoc and dematerializing without a trace. In 2009, the effect manifested in Tuscany, centered on a small church on the outskirts of a town. Local police officers responded, leading to a conflict that culminated with the collapse of the church. 54 people died, 12 were critically injured, and 30 had minor injuries, with the foundation covering it up with a story involving a tanker truck carrying petrol, overturning and igniting, destroying the church and killing the congregation inside. When the foundation discovered the computer, they were able to log onto the server running the Quake match, where the three players were chatting with one another as if it were a normal game. When the researcher chimes in, they tell him that this is a private server, and one of them says to boot him and to load the next map. The researcher says that he's accessing the server from a computer they found, which they believe belongs to one of them, a Miss Gloria Stanfield. The one player accuses him of hacking and says to boot him, but Gloria asks how he knows her name. The researcher asks if any of them can tell him where they are right now. This question causes the three of them to panic, finally realizing that the only thing they can perceive is the computer screen in front of them. They wonder how they're even typing, as they can't see a keyboard. The researcher asks them to calm down, and says that they're here to help, but it's imperative that they not play any more matches. The other two are still panicking, but Gloria asks why it's imperative that they don't play anymore, to which the researcher just says that it might complicate any attempts to retrieve them. One of them says that he remembers playing hundreds of matches, and they could have been here for weeks. They wonder if their parents know what's been going on, but the researcher says they don't, as they think that the three of them have been missing since 1997. This remark causes them to question the current date, 
which the researcher reveals is 2010, resulting in them panicking even more. Gloria eventually calms them down, saying that they need to think this through, and the researcher eventually tells them to start up another match, but don't do anything but follow his instructions. Upon loading a new map, they tell him that it's just another custom map, with a huge field, some trees, some zombies, and some rottweilers. One of them questions why the monsters are running, but another says that it's something to do with the mod they're using, and they run most of the time. The researcher tells them to stay still and not attack anything, as they're trying to find them. The players begin to be attacked by units they call grunts, but Gloria says that it's fine, they'll just respawn, and to not shoot them. One of the other players, Jim, shoots back, resulting in Gloria killing him, and explaining that they're people, either police or soldiers. They realize that they haven't just been playing a game, but right now they're in a park. The Foundation has found their location and is sending a unit to retrieve them, telling them to just stand still. One player asks how they found them, but Gloria says they probably just turned on the news. Some days go by, and it seems that the Foundation has been unsuccessful in pulling them out of the server. Jim has apparently been silent for three days, and none of them feel like starting up another match to help the Foundation research the situation. Jim pops in then to ask how many people he's killed, but the researcher doesn't know, and even if he did, he doesn't know if that number would be helpful. Jim bets that it's more than a thousand, and the worst part is that he killed them for ammo so that he could shoot his friends with the worst worst part being that he doesn't even know what any of them looked like. The others say that they'll deal with this together, but Jim says that he deserves to die, although he knows he'll just respawn. A month goes by, and now none of the players are talking to either the Foundation or each other. They know that the three are still connected, and the researcher says he'll just try again tomorrow. More time goes by, with the researcher continuing to check in every week, but there hasn't been a response in a long time. He says that it's been so long that the higher-ups barely even consider them anomalous anymore. He says that he's been telling them that he knows that this is hard, but the truth is that none of them can even begin to fathom what it's been like for them. They were just some ordinary teenagers that got sucked into a game without realizing it, and have been responsible for over 1,500 deaths, as far as they can figure. He has a teenage son himself, so even though he can't understand, he can sympathize. He doesn't think any of them are evil, it's just been beyond unfair what happened to them. But they need to talk, otherwise nothing can be done. He logs off with no response, however, telling them that he'll try again next week. An unknown amount of time later, the researcher logs back into the server, asking them for help. He doesn't know how long it's been since he last tried to communicate, but he begs them to respond as he needs help. 
Gloria finally says something. And the researcher says he needs their help as he's trapped in a lab during a containment breach. He doesn't have time to explain, but they're not the only anomalous things around, and one of them, a monster, broke free. Gloria asks what he wants them to do about it, and the researcher just asks for help, as it's outside in the hall, killing people. Gloria says that he doesn't understand what he's asking for, and she's not even sure the others are still here, but the other two chime in at that point. The researcher says that he wants them to fight it, and the others look to Gloria as their leader for what they should do. She can't be their leader though, as it's her fault that they're all stuck here, since it was her computer, her mods, and her server. They don't care though, and tell her to make the call. The researcher begs again for their help as it's breaking down the door, so Gloria decides to load in. The following day, the researcher logs back in, and Gloria says that they're feeling better after talking a lot. He says that they're still running numbers on deaths, but the numbers are a lot lower than it would have been if they hadn't helped. Gloria says that's good, but she wants a straight, truthful answer on whether or not they killed anyone during the battle. The researcher is sure that they didn't as practically everyone in the area was already dead when they manifested in. The three of them talked and came to a decision, as they've been stuck here while the Foundation runs tests on them and they're not allowed to talk to their families. They don't believe that they're ever getting out of this server, and the researcher admits that they don't know what to do or how to get them out, if that would even be a possible thing. They accept this, but they say that they want to do something, and there's really only one thing they're good at now. They've already done a lot of damage and killed a lot of people, but they can't do anything about that now. Instead, they want to save lives by killing monsters for the Foundation, remarking that they're unstoppable, nigh-immortal, digitized death gods who have spent more than ten years practice killing each other in endlessly looped murder orgies. Their one condition is that they never want to kill another person again. The researcher tells them that he'll have to talk to his superiors. When he logs back in, he tells them that they said yes. This led to the creation of MTF Omega-9, the Scrubs. Their mission involves instantaneous deployment into extreme circumstances requiring the delivery of overwhelming force. Their primary purpose is as a rapid response team for containment breaches involving violent, hostile anomalies, only to be used for non-human targets. Even the Foundation's not foolish enough to waste a team of cooperative, immortal slaughterers. Not all of these articles were about weird video games, which is perhaps what you might have assumed going in, but each at least was directly connected with one, in some fashion. There are plenty more of course, which is no surprise, since video games are such an important part of modern internet culture. From Polybius to Lavender Town, myths and legends about video games have continued to crop up for decades, and just like SCP in general, 
form a new age of folklore. 